Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening, and welcome to The Interpreter Radio Show. I'm Bruce Webster. I'm here with my co-host, Robert Boylan. The Interpreter Radio Show is sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scriptures, doctrine, and history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can find us at interpreterfoundation.org. That's all one word, interpreterfoundation.org. For the first part of tonight's show, we are going to talk about a fun subject. We're going to talk about chapters 6 through 14, of the revelation of John. Uh, <clears throat> as I was commenting to Robert on, on our way to the studio tonight, I said there have probably been more bad movies and novels <laughs> and, and a few good ones written, drawing upon stuff from these chapters than probably any other section of chapters out of the New Testament, actually out of the Bible, period. So I'm going to, since I'm still uh, setting myself up here, I'm going to cheerfully punt to Robert to give us background here. Uh, we'll, we'll do, I'm, sh I'm sure they did some last week, but uh, I'll let Robert do some introduction to the book of Revelation, period, and then specifically to these chapters and what we're talking about, and then I'll leap in when I feel like I actually have something to contribute. Robert, take it away. Okay, well, uh, the book of Revelation, I'm glad you said Revelation singular. Uh, <laughs> many people think it's Revelations, but it's singular. Um, I will kick you out of my gospel doctrine class if you say it's plural, but it belongs to like apocalyptic literature. In fact, um, the Greek is apocalypsis of John. And in apocalyptic literature deals with a lot of um, symbolism or dealing with like end times and so forth. Um, there's a term that's often bandied about and misinterpreted, like the term myth and mythology. But like when anthropologists and biblical scholars refer to Revelation as myth, it refers to it being a text that contains a lot of symbolic language. Like a good analogy would be like a dream. Like if you have a dream where you're worried you're going to lose your job, you might have like the dream where your teeth fall out or something like that. It's similar to the book of Revelation. There's a lot of language and symbolism that has to be interpreted in light of apocalyptic literature. And the book of Revelation is not the only text either in the Bible or contemporary literature that's apocalyptic in nature. Like there's various chapters in the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel, for instance, that deals with apocalyptic themes. But the book of Revelation is like 22 entire chapters of this team. And there's other contemporary texts um, in the pseudepigraphat, like the Apocalyptics of Zephaniah, that has very similar themes and motives as well. So it's not like a new genre. It was like a genre that had a lot of contemporary currency. Um, in terms of its background, um, John Tretness actually wrote an introduction and some commentary on uh, the book of Revelation, part of the um, footnotes of the study of the New Testament, edited by Kevin Burney, which is available online for free. Uh, it's a three-volume set, and it's very good. Uh, he gives background that, quote, The New Testament book of Revelation is also called Apocalypse, which is how Catholics, traditional Catholics call it, the Greek meaning Revelation. It's derived its name from the introductory words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, things which must, must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by the angel unto his servant John. And that's Revelation 1.1. Because the book describes many of the destructive elements that will precede Christ's second coming, the term apocalypse has taken on a new meaning in English, alluding to the final battle between the forces of good and forces of evil. Um, 
there's a lot we could say about background like there's a debate as to like when the book of revelation was written uh the traditional date which i lean towards would be it's sometime in the uh, mid or late 90s so it may not be necessarily the last book written but it could be indeed the last new testament book written if one believes as i do peter was associated with first and second peter and paul did write the pastoral epistles but um be that as me there's a lot of very important texts and like latter-day saints are blessed because we do have authoritative revelation on the meaning of some of the themes contained therein and that's in section 77 of the doctrine covenants unfortunately it ends with revelation 11 i would have loved if joseph gave the authoritative <laughs> interpretation to women in revelation 12 and some <laughs> other cool stuff you know but uh be that as me uh it's a very important text uh its christology is very high but its view of anthropology is very high as well like in revelation 3 um jesus says to those who will uh, persevere that the synagogue of Sa satan will offer proskinesis or worship at their feet yeah. uh which ha has a very high view of man but also in revelation 3 verse 21 christ is sitting on the singular throne of god and he promises those who will persevere that they will sit on the singular throne of god and if you're familiar with intertestamental literature and new testament texts uh to sit on the throne of god was not simply judicial it meant to um partake of the divine nature uh, many people believe when christ is said you sit on the throne of god like richard bockham for instance that this evidence is a very high christology but we also have patriarchal figures like job in the testament of job that was found at Qumran and the old testament pseudepigrapha and other elevated figures who sit on the throne singular of god and believers in revelation are said to sit on the throne of god which kind of teaches rather explicitly in light of the uh, first century context uh, deification or teosis or eternal progression the user or nomenclature so once you understand like say the first century background to a lot of these issues as well it helps a great deal in showing like uh, the very high theology of man the high christology and also very important angelology or angelology as well because god gives jesus a revelation but it's done through the mediation of an angel as well and there's a lot of teams about angels or heavenly presbyters um and their relationship to prayer as well so it's a really cool volume um Although I would have to believe that when Joseph Smith said something to the effect of it's the plainest book written or something to that effect. <laughs> I don't know the exact quote. I'm honestly believe he was pulling people's leg. Yes, yes. I, I, I actually agree with that. I think I think he was just saying that letting people feel, wait, wait, what do you mean it's the plainest book written? I'm a little disappointed that the Joseph Smith papers never found like a reminiscence or anything like that. Yes. Of, um, <laughs> and, you know, and I remember that day when Brother Joseph said this, but I know he had his fingers crossed behind his back. And then he told uh, everyone afterwards, I wonder how many he told, I was being serious, but um, if anyone at the JS Papers Project or the Church History Library can find out, um, I owe you a root beer. <laughs> there you go. The uh, and, and before we dive into these chapters, because these, these are the ones that we tend to uh, look at as being tied to the last days. Uh, it's where we get the phrase, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, things like that. Uh, Eric Huntsman and uh, Cecilia Peake uh, point out in, in one of their articles on, on Revelation that uh, there are sort of four classic approaches, and I'm, I'm talking broadly now among scholars to uh, dealing with these chapters. First one is preterite, which says that these describe events that happened before the book was written. Then a, there's an historical approach that says these describe events contemporaneous with or in the near future of it. And then there's a futurist approach which says these describe events of the last days in the far future. And then a, uh, that's the word I'm looking for, basically a, uh, uh, okay, I'm having a serious 
brain pause here. <clears throat> Basically, a, a symbolic interpretation saying these aren't tied to historical events but describe general patterns and so on. Uh, and then they point out, actually, in the same article, that Latter day Saints actually mix the first three quite freely in their interpretation. That it's, it's old history, it's history at the time of John, it's future history. Uh, and, uh, and I think there's some of the symbol symbolism in there as well. Uh, and it's also useful to, to remember this is, I think those same approaches also apply to Isaiah. Uh, we, tend to, we tend to try and come up with this is what Isaiah really meant. It's like, no, no, I think, I think God and Isaiah were saying, okay, let's, let's lay something down here that'll keep them going for like 3,000 years. Uh, and did a great job, actually. So that said, let's get into these juicy chapters. And we're going to start with chapter 6 here. Uh, which uh, we're, we're going to lead off with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, <clears throat> there are, we, 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 in popular culture, these are seen as all harbingers of uh, events in the last days. However, if you go to DNC 77 and some other interpretations, these are seen as describing dispensations or periods prior to the time of John. Uh, but we're going to have the the Lamb, Christ, opening one of the seven seals, and there was a great presentation by uh, uh, John Walsh at uh, FAIR on seals and seals in documents at this time and what it meant and how the seals basically verified that this was a legitimate document and you had to, uh, it, it, it was, you had stuff sealed up and then you couldn't break the seals without, you know, devalidating the documents. So it's like, this is, this is a real thing. Okay. That's it. I should have read that. I should have gone back and re-listened to that before I got here, but that just occurred to me. So we're going to get a white horse with one with a bow and a crown. And I'm going to kick it back to Robert. <laughs> well, uh, before we kind of discuss the white horse and uh, the fun that could cause, like the very first uh, verse, like, and when I saw the lamb, the Aronian, um opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, what did the four beasts sing, come and see. Jesus is depicted even in his resurrected state as a lamb or an urnion. Um And this kind of brings out a very important theme in the book of Revelation, the idea of what's called paradoxical conquering. Because the theme of like Christians and Jesus conquering over the forces of evil and the forces of death is one that permeates all 22 chapters of the book. But it's done paradoxically. Because if you were to think like how would you conquer your enemy in a battle well you say you would kill them and you would defeat them you know but it's the opposite in revelation the victors are actually murdered they're killed so from a seemingly worldly perspective they're defeated but because of their witness they're raised up by god and they're def uh, they defeat their enemies so there's this theme of paradoxical conquering because the lamb as we read later in the book of revelation we read of the orge or the rot of the lamb against the foe, his foes, the works of evil. And it's not, it's kind of reminds me of the, and this may be a bit irreverent, but like uh, Monty Python, I love Monty <laughs> Python, uh, the rabbit uh, from um, yes. Crest for the Holy Grail. Yeah. It, it's like that. Oh, sure, it's just a rabbit and then it savages you. Yes. You know, that kind of um, <laughs> paradox. You know, it, it, this comes out like Jesus is depicted as a lamb in Revelation 5, which was uh, discussed last week. You know, in heaven he intercedes, but he has his throat cut. You know, he's been sacrificed. So there's, how, how is he victorious if he's dead? And how are the Christians victorious, you know, and recipients of the wreath of God and so forth, the uh, 
a coronation as well for them if they die and revelation kind of um, brings out this very good team of paradoxical conquering um but when it comes to say the white horse um First of all, um, there's a lot of uh, stuff, interesting stuff about the uh, symbolo symbology of the uh, various horses. Like in verse 8, we read of a pale horse, and to quote one commentary, uh, this is a symbol of pestilence as well of death. Thanatos' death can also mean pestilence, uh, Revelation 2.23 and 18.8. This rider stands too as an epitome of the four plagues. Pa um, pale literally means green, apparently sickly pale. Um, and this kind of shows, like, we should not be expecting individuals to fulfill these characteristics oh, at yeah. times yeah often it's a personification of either a system or a group or and so forth you know um like when it comes to see the antichrist team in the book of revelation and other texts you should not be looking towards to a future present of the usa as dreadful as a number of them are <laughs> these days it's more like say an idea like yeah. Uh, for instance, Satan is referred to in the book of Revelation in chapter 3, for instance, and chapter 2, but it's a codename for Rome at times. And in, as an analogous, this is what's going on here. Many of these horsemen, they're symbols of death and plagues, but they themselves will not have a fulfillment in a singular individual. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's pretty important when it comes to interpretation of the book of Revelation. There are not literally four horsemen of the apocalypse who are going to ride around the earth. Yeah. These, are, these are representations of different types of events and eras uh but it, it's just with respect to the white horse uh this has a lot of a contemporary uh currency at times whenever latter-day saints run for presidential <laughs> office um there's from edwin rushton and i honestly believe i'm not going to name the historians but they actually agree with me in this assessment um he he basically made up the white horse prophecy that came comes up every so often uh we at the bh roberts foundation actually has a uh, an article and a research project associated with the B, uh, white horse prophecy so uh, for those who may be hoping the crazy high priest guy will not bring it up, but if he does, uh, just uh, refer them to that prophecy. Um, Joseph did teach like the constitution would hand by a tread and so forth, but he never taught the white horse prophecy. And this is the, where some of it comes from anyway. I just thought I'd uh, mention that. Listen, listen to Robert. If, if people in, in your priesthood quorum or study group start bringing up white horse prophecy, just say, no, no, Joseph never taught that. Just trust us on this one. Yeah. So we've got we've got the first, second, third, and fourth seal. We've got one on uh, conquering, one on uh, taking peace from the earth, one on a black horse with famine, uh, because when it went the measure of wheat for a denarii, a silver coin, denarius, uh, or three measures for us, it's about three to four times nor the normal cost of what you'd get. You'd get a lot more for that. And then the fourth one, as he said, is pale horse. Uh, it had the name of death, and Hades followed after them, and then you've got them. They're killing with the sword, famine, disease, and by the wild animals. So we, we have these four. Now, there are a number of different interpretations of these sections. One tie them to four dispensations prior to the time of Christ. Uh, so the first one is uh, <clears throat> Adam and Enoch. Second one is Noah. Third one is uh, the uh, famine that we have at the time of Abraham and uh, uh, Joseph in Egypt and so on. And the fourth one is uh, the various conquering uh, civilizations, Alexander the Great, Persians, Hittites, Greeks, everyone who were fighting each other up to the time of Christ. Uh, my personal opinion is, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's what they actually refer to, but... Uh, <clears throat> My rule of thumb on stuff like this is, oh, that's interesting. Uh, 
but but don't hang your testimony on it or get into arguments in, in priesthood meeting. Uh, I'm sure they never argue about this in early society. It's only in priesthood meeting that you get this. One of my favorite cartoons of all time shows a uh, elders quorum instructor. I think I may have mentioned this last week. So apologies if I'm bringing it up again. Shows an elders quorum instructor up at the uh, chalkboard prior to an elders quorum meeting and says, today's lesson will be on the atonement, which will devolve into an argument over ancient American airfields. Uh, <laughs> you know, guys, stick to the lessons. Just, you know, those general conference talks. Okay. Uh, Robert comments on the first four, the 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 proverbial four horsemen of the top apocalypse. Your well, thoughts and comments? Well, in verse two, uh, there's mention of a bow. Uh, bow um, and according to one commentary, uh, Wilford, um, Wilford Harrington, um, whose accounts I used to do when I was in Ireland, he used to be a Dominican, um, you know, the imagery becomes more specific. Uh, mention of the bow, uh, bow, I should say, pints of the Parthians, the only mounted archers of the first century CE. The Parthians, along the eastern frontier of the empire, were the great contemporary threat to Rome. They were in mind again in 914 and 1612. So in his view, quote, the first seal would suggest John's hope of a Parthian invasion signaling the beginning of the end of Roman sovereignty, yep. which kind of reminds me of another team. Um, in Paul's writings, for instance, but also in Revelation, the idea of like Rome and the Roman Empire being subverted either directly or indirectly in the writings comes out quite a bit. Um, it doesn't say like Rome bad, Rome will be destroyed soon, but through like a lot of the symbolism, even if you believe it's in a context of giving a uh, future pr uh, prophetic utterance. Mm -hmm. It's using the language of subverting the evil Roman Empire, you know, in light of the true empire and emperor, which is Christ as yeah. well. So there's a lot of subversion going through the apocalypse, even in this context of the four horsemen as well. Because, you know, um, it's uh, Rome is often seen as the code word for, uh, Satan is often the code word for Rome, like mm -hmm. in Revelation 2. So it kind of comes out like, yeah, uh, John, you know, he's not going to say, wrote Empire ba Emperor Bad, you know, because he wants to live and he wants the Christians to live, but he's still going to, like, use a lot of language and ideas that people in the know will get. You know, a lot of baseball, uh, insider baseball language. Sort uh, of the New Testament uh, equivalent of Animal Farm. That's not, that's <laughs> we're we're going to talk about this, and we're not going to actually mention specific countries or names, but we're going to mention things that people are going to say, oh, I see what he's talking about there. Uh... Any other thoughts on the, the our real four horsemen? Well, um, in some of the um, issues, like for instance, in verse six, there's a rather interesting line: uh, "Thou hurt not the isle and the wine," uh, with reference to this. And um, you know, this kind of points to like say a late day to Revelation. Uh, you might be wondering how, but um, wine and all should be regard not not be regarded as luxury commodities, since wheat, barley, isle, and wine were staple items in the um, Palestine and Asia Minor. The conditions suggest famine, but not total famine, as per verse 8. So it's possible that this verse, uh, which has this do not harm the oil and the wine, may refer to a 92 CE or AD edict of Domitian requiring half of the vineyards in the provinces to be cut in favor of grain growing. Uh, so this text may reflect then famine conditions and a remedy which threatened the vines and perhaps the olive groves of the region. There you go. So, um, yeah, it kind of so this kind of shows like the importance, like, say, knowing the context, because this kind of makes yeah. sense of a very unusual text, you know, if you were to say, do not harm the all in one, us moderns might think, well, isle and wine, you know, that's commodities, but no, this was pretty staple food, and it's referring to a famine that may have been just like maybe five years previously as well. It kind of reminds like, I think, in Amos, I believe, uh, I believe it's Amos where uh, references the earthquake, um, mm -hmm. you know, and just leaves it at that, and even though the context is like, which earthquake, dude? <laughs> and it's kind of like this, like, um, yeah. once you kind of understand, like, what's going on, it kind of makes more sense when it comes to these um, seemingly odd 
phrases. Okay, moving on, since we've gotten four verses and we are about <laughs> 20 minutes into the show. <laughs> it's good stuff. Uh, so now we go to the uh, fifth and sixth seals. Uh, the uh, fifth seal talks about uh, the martyrs and uh, those who are crying out for it to be avenged, as per uh, <coughs> Robert's earlier comments. And then the sixth seal is where we start to get into what we think is apocalyptic stuff, not in terms of hidden writings uh, and revelation, but in terms of uh, great events shaping things. So we have the, uh, in verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, there's a great earthquake, something that keeps showing up, earthquakes, uh, which we, we see echoes of uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants. And then one of my favorite passages, there, there, are, there is this triumvirate of the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, stars falling in heaven, shows up in every book of the standard works. Uh, it's, it, it seems to be a trope or shorthand for, uh, you know, what, what we think of when we think of bad moon rising or something like that. It's like, okay, things are really going to get serious here. It's going to be difficult. Uh, and we have, we have uh, 12 through the end of the chapter, a standard. This, this is, we, we see this in the Old Testament as well, uh, including in Isaiah, the idea that as God starts to exercise judgment upon the world, the wicked are going to hide. They're going to try to go to caves and mountains and find places that they're safe and uh, say, uh, you know, hide Hide us from the face of him who is seated upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? And that, to a large extent, sets the tone for the reigning chapters we have. It's like, okay, we have the great day of the wrath of the Lamb. Uh, and what, we have, what we're going to have here is a number of chapters that are going to describe uh, symbolic uh, and or literal events that are associated with the wrath of the Lamb. Again, we typically interpret them as uh, signs of the second coming, which, which they may well be. Again, Isaiah should teach us that stuff can be contemporary and it can be future. Uh, but as per Robert's comments, it helps to understand the, the historical context and uh, what John was dealing with. Is there anything else you want to say on chapter 6? Uh, well, as I mentioned previously, it refers to the wrath of the Lamb, which is like a very paradoxical term. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But it also shows like, um, you know, one should make sure like they have a very, very balanced view of Jesus. Like uh, there's the hippie, sugary Jesus out there, even amongst some Latter-day Saints. It's like, no, Jesus um, Jesus will be pretty wrathful at the age to come. You know, it's like the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Yep. It'll be great for like the righteous, but it's going to be very dreadful for like um, a lot of people. You know, it's not full-blown universalism here. Okay, chapter 7, the ceiling of the 144,000. Uh, we have an interpretation in DNC, Robert knows it, which section talks about the interpretation of who the 144,000 are. <laughs> oh, come on, I expect you to have this stuff memorized, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it is, but like uh, Joseph Smith did also touch upon the 144,000. Yeah, that's um, what I was thinking. Of. Yeah, like he... Um, isn't that one of the question and answer yeah, sections? Yeah. Okay. Well, also yeah. like uh, from one of his sermons as well, oh, okay. from uh, May 12, 1844. There we go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I have an order of teens to save the poor fellows at any rate and get them saved, where I will send men to preach to them in prison and save them if I can. And then he kind of goes on. Um, 
you know, you should be baptized, you're dead, but you will have to go through all the ordinances for them, same as you have gone through to save yourselves. There will be 144,000 saviors on Mount Zion, and with them an innumerable host that no man can number. Oh, I beseech you to go forward and make your call and election sure. And if many preach any other gospel that which will be preached, he shall be cursed. And some of you know, uh, now hear me uh, see it and know that I testify the truth concerning them in regard to the law of priesthood. And then he kind of goes on. It's basically like 144,000 high priests. So okay. basically, you know, he's view. Uh, for instance, and just like I got the section 77 uh, up, it's um, verse 11. What are we to understand by the sitting of the 144,000 out of all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 out of every tribe, question mark. And then the answer is we are to understand that those who are sealed are high priests, ordained unto the holy order of God to administer the everlasting gospel. For they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people by the angels to whom it is given power over the nations of the earth to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. There we go. So... They will play an eschatological or end times role as well. But, uh, you know, sorry for our JW friends, but like uh, more than 144,000 will go to heaven. Well, yes, and, and that's actually pretty clear uh, from the next few verses because we have a large crowd that no one could number, also in white robes. Yes. And someone asks, who are these? Uh, and uh, John says, well, you know. And he says, these are the ones who came from the great tribulation, and they washed their robes and whitened them in the blood of the Lamb. Because of this, they are in front of the throne of God and they minister him night and day in his temple and the one seated upon the throne will shelter them. They will not be hungry or thirsty again, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any burning heat, because the lamb in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and he will lead them to a fountain of life-giving waters, direct reference to Psalm 23, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we, we have, yes. Again, apologies to the Jehovah's Witnesses, but it's quite clear there's an innumerable thing. Robert. And, and even in that pericope, that uh, unish that you referenced, there's a lot of important theology. Like, they were made uh, white through the blood yes. of them. It's not simply a legal declaration. It's something that transforms the inner soul of the person. Yep. And there's also temple imagery. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it will be a temple, not like a physical <laughs> temple like the Salt Lake Temple, but because God's presence is there, it's a temple. It's a neos. Uh, so temple worship and temple ideas were not like completely done and dusted if you will reverently speaking with the death and resurrection of christ there's still an allowable understanding like say the temple in christian worship even in this time and there's a lot of christian worship teams throughout the book of revelation yeah um you know like the altar the liturgy and so forth that reference to the ark and oh yeah we'll definitely discuss it so like it's something like latter-day saints and those who have high liturgy as well eastern orthodox and catholics and some anglicans would appreciate, but like it doesn't really make a lot of lick of sense if you have a very low liturgy. Yeah. In total, um, we do have a high liturgy in the temple. So again, a lot of very important theological yeah. teams, presenting from like say you know the interpretation of Revelation, like is a historic his, historicist uh, or futuristic and what have you. Still in these in terms of theology, there's a lot of uh, well Mormon theology contained during as well. And if if you accept the late dating, uh, the later dating, uh, 90 BC, mm -hmm. that's after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So we now have the heavenly temple, which is continuing uh, after the uh, the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. And sure. you've got, uh, in essence, the transition of the temple and temple rites and uh, the blood of the lamb, quite literally. Uh, the uh, Passover lamb is there washing them clean. <clears throat> the seventh seal. I think there's more than one movie with that name. Uh, <laughs> chapter 8, the opening of the seventh seal. Okay. 
I'm going to let you kick this one off, Robert. Okay. Uh, chapter 8, is it? Yes. Okay, now I just get my notes. Um, well, it begins with, like, and when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Um, I'll refrain oh. from I'll refrain from making the joke I often make about Revelation here, but uh, there's it seems to be like a primeval silence, and there's like a lot of um, Old Testament texts or Old Testament pseudepigrapha that kind of um, parallels this. For instance, there's a text. Sometimes it's called two Ezra, sometimes it's called four Ezra, in, but in chapter seven it reads, "Then the world shall be turned back to primeval silence for seven days, mm. as it was the first beginning, so that no one shall be left." After seven days, the world that is not yet awake shall be roused, and that which is corruptible shall perish. The earth shall give up those who are asleep in it, and the dust those who rest there in silence, and the chambers shall give up the souls that have been committed to them. The Most High shall be revealed on the seat of judgment, and compassion shall pass away, and patience shall be withdrawn. So the idea, like, say, this kind of primeval or eschatological silence, it's not novel to Revelation. Like, readers and listeners would have understood this comp team because yeah. for Ezra or second Ezra's was like a pretty popular text at the time presenting from like its canonical status. So it kind of, uh, it's like a silence dealing with like divine judgment dealing with like end times issues as well, like resurrection and judgment. So it's, pr it's not just like a silence, like what the heck's going on or, mm -hmm. you know, a silence like, Shh, but like s stuff's going to happen soon. Yeah. <laughs> you know. The, uh, and then we get, we get another, again, Lots of lots of numerical stuff in, in Revelation. So we have seven agents with seven angels, seven angels with seven trumpets, uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, they're going to start sounding the trumpets, and we're going to start having uh, we're working our way up to the seventh trumpet, which is going to be the biggest one. But uh, uh, we do have we, we have an interesting thing that uh, the seven thunders spoke, and John was about to write and said. And, and this, this again, echoes uh, some of our uh, own scripture, particularly in the Book of Mormon. The Lord says, no, don't write that. Yeah. Just seal that up. Uh, and uh, so he does, and, and then I'll pass back to Robert here. Well, it's just like um, when it mentions like the seven angels in verse 2, in Jewish tradition at the time, there were actually seven archangels, which has led some interpreters to actually believe these seven angels are actually these seven archangels. Like, um, they may be the angel of the presence, uh, such as the angel of the presence in Isaiah 63. And there's actually seven archangels according to another apocalyptic text that Revelation seems to be interacting with, First Enoch, that Jude quotes as well. Uh, 1 Enoch 21 to 8 for the reference. Uh, of Jewish tradition who serve in the immediate presence of God, such as Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, who according to Joseph Smith, he references in section 128, Uriel, Raguel, Sariel, and Ramiel. And it appears also in like Tobit 12.5. You know, of course, like there's Luke one nineteen quote, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Yeah. So these seven angels, because of it being seven specifically, it could be symbolic by the same time. These could be like, say, seven super angels or archangels. Um, and in light of our theology, like who Michael is and who Gabriel is, for instance, uh, Michael in our theology is the angel of days from Daniel 7. He's also Adam. And Joseph Smith, at least on one occasion, taught that Gabriel and Noah were the same person. Yeah. These are also dispensation heads, which kind of fits the eschatological themes of Revelation as well, that all these important figures, including Adam and Noah, um, would play this kind of role in the unveiling, if you will, of the wrath of God and his final victory over death and sin and so forth. So I think it's rather fitting as well. The... Uh, <coughs> We also have the the uh, and and this again is 
symbolism that we see in various forms. We have the symbolism of being handed a book and him being told to eat it and said it'll be sweet in your mouth and bitter in your stomach. Uh, meaning that, you know, it's, it's good to have the word of God, but the consequences uh, may not sit well. And specifically that you must prophesy again about many people, nations, languages, and kings. Uh, so we've, we've got John being tasked here. He's being told what he can and cannot say. He's being told what his mission is going to be. Uh, and he's getting this in the midst of, again, all these events, whether you interpret them as being near future for him, far future for us, uh, or both. Uh, <clears throat> So then we come to the two martyrs. Uh, Orson Scott Card says, if you want to understand young men, young Latter-day Saint men, realize most boys wonder if they'll grow up to be one of the two martyrs in Revelation. Except he wrote that back in 1980, and I'm, I'm not sure enough young men know enough about the Old Testament to even know who the two martyrs, or the New Testament in this case, know who the two martyrs are. Uh, but let's talk about the two martyrs, the, the two olive trees and the two lamps standing before the Lord of the earth. Uh, <clears throat> and you, you have this whole sequence that they're going to go to Jerus Jerusalem, they're going to preach there for 42 months, no one will be able to stop them, they'll be killed, they'll lie dead in the streets for uh, three and a half days, then they'll be resurrected basically by Christ and ascend to heaven, it'll be a great earthquake, and here I'm really going to punch Robert too for the uh, commentaries that uh, he's looked at concerning this. Well, we respect that the uh, martyrs uh, in Revelation 11 and some other texts, like, um, here's the thing, we don't know. But there's, like, being various um, guesstimates as to, like, who these could be, like, in various traditions. Like, um, for instance, Enoch and Elijah, at least one of them uh, wouldn't be Moses, and Enoch-Moses combination, Enoch and Melchizedek, Enoch and John the Revelator himself, Enoch and Elijah, Elijah and John the Baptist, and also... Um, in LDS tradition, there's also two contemporary LDS apostles or prophets from the first presidency and or Quorum of the Twelve. So it, uh, the reason why like the whole Elijah and Enoch in tradition is pretty popular and sometimes Moses is because there's various traditions that they never actually died. Hmm. Uh, they're you know, translated, uh, yeah. We, yeah, we, like uh, we have the uh, burial of Moses, but that's written obviously not by Moses, and there's a tradition that, yeah, he died, but like later Catholic and Eastern Orthodox tradition about Mary you know, died, but was bodily assumed into heaven shortly yeah. afterwards. And of course, we know that Enoch and Elijah, based on like Genesis 5, yeah. Hebrews 11, and also the opening chapters of Second Kings for Elijah, never tasted death and they were translated or assumed into uh, heaven as well. So the view in some traditions would be, well, they have, they have to die anyway and be uh, to be resurrected. So they could be the end times martyrs or they can be symbols of the end time martyrs as well. Uh, push comes to shove, I think I, there's... I'm not saying it's impossible, but I do think, like, say, a tr more traditional view, like, they will be, like, soon-to-be birthed uh, prophets or apostles in this uh, or dispensation. These probably the um, better interpretation, especially yeah. in light of um, the commentary in Section 77 as well. Yep. Sorry, just keeping an eye on our time here. Uh, then we have the seventh trumpet blowing, and we have the passage that we all know because it's right there in the, the Messiah. Uh kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will rule 
He will reign, reign forever and ever. I'm, I'm reading. I'm reading the Weymouth translation. I don't have the King James in front of me. Oh, that's okay. We all love Handel. <laughs> yes. But just uh, if I just on the uh, the witnesses themselves, because I know this is Revelation okay, 11, but uh, section 77, verse 15. Uh, they are two pro- two prophets that are to be raised up to the Jewish nation in the last days at the time of the restoration and to prophesy to the Jews after they are gathered and have built the city of Jerusalem in the land of their fathers. So the very fact, at least in my view, like to be raised up, that seems to be. I don't really think you can use that verbiage for like Moses at all, who yeah. were already raised up. I think the more traditional LDS view that these are two prophets of this dispensation in sometime in the future, I think that will be the uh, better interpretation. Uh, but that's just me. Okay, now we now things really get serious here with the seventh trumpet. Uh, Twenty-four elders uh, basically say, "Your wrath has come. It is time for the dead to be judged. Has come." Uh, and the time for destroying those who destroyed the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, voices, thunders, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Uh, so we have this, <clears throat> we're back to the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have this revelation of the temple, of the, the ark of the covenant, which is typically in the Holy of Holies. Uh, and this is, this is sort of the, I mean, <clears throat> this actually captures on a vast scale the sort of scene we have at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> where they open a covenant, much, much to their destruction. And it's, it's the same imagery here. It's like, you know, the, the, the Holy of Holies and God's temple in heaven is thrown open, and this is what brings... This triggers the consequences, as they say, for destroying those who have destroyed the earth. Robert, comments, thoughts? Well, um, the Ark of the uh, Covenants was like the most holy object in the Old Testament era. Um, You know, it was made like, say, very fine, um, you know, shittimer acacia wood covered in gold. Uh, It also contained the tablets of the law written by God's finger on Sinai. And it represented the covenant relationship between uh, Yahweh and Israel. And on top of the ark was a gold stab called the mercy seat, the helisterion that Paul uses symbolically for the work of Christ in the book of Rome, in the epistle of Romans, uh, with a gold curb on each uh, stand, each end. And in the Bible, the Lord is often designated as the one who dwells or sits between the curbs in the book of Psalms and Isaiah. So it was a very holy object. It was the place of atonement, the mercy seat, um, and it was very holy. I mean, only those who were designated to be able to touch or interact with it could do so. We all know about the uh, very story in the Old Testament about, you know, um, those who... Steading the Ark. Steading the Ark, yeah. you know, and they may have been well-meaning, but God struck them dead because it was, it was the holiest of objects. Um, you know, and when it was retrieved by D- uh, David, he did like a liturgical dance in 2 Samuel, you know. So it was a very important text, uh, object, I should say. But there's like a tradition like, what happened to it? You yeah. know, and we, so like borrowing from this like very important Old Testament text in Revelation eleven nineteen, it says like it actually saw the Ark of the Testament or Ark of the Covenant in heaven. So like this is a very holy scene. So um, yeah, and the image is important. Uh, let me just quote from the BYU commentary. Uh, the image is important at this point when destruction has been so great because it affirms that all that has transpired has been in accord with the divine covenant. Further, the Lord is here. Uh, taking his promise to its next step, namely bringing paradise back to the world. That's from the BYU New Testament commentary uh, on Revelation. Okay, signs in heaven, chapter 12. Uh, the woman. 
representing representing the woman and the dragon and the fight between the church and Satan uh, with a flashback to the war in heaven. Uh, so, <clears throat> I'm, I'm just going to punch. I mean, I could say this, but Robert can probably say it more intelligently. Sure. Who's the woman? Uh, okay. <laughs> it's not Mary. Uh, <laughs> has Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, first of all, this is a very important text for Latter-day Saints because Joseph in his rep- his early and later revelations would allude to this, um, the woman in the wilderness and so forth. Uh, for instance, section 5, verse 14 of the Doctrine and Covenants, in this, the beginning of the rising up of the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness, search language also appears in 33, 5 and 109, 73. Uh, I'll just quote 109, 73 because it's part of the Kirtland Temple Prayer. That the church may come forth of the wilderness of darkness and shine forth fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners, more eschatological revelation-like language. Um, and there's a number of commentaries as well. Like if you look at the earliest New Testament, uh, post-New Testament interpretations of the Bible, um, they are pretty unanimous that this woman is not a f- singular figure. It's actually a corporate entity, i.e. the new covenant people of God or the church, basically. Uh, for instance, there's Hippolytus of Rome in his fragment 61. Uh, he, by the woman included with the son, he, John, meant most manifestly the church. Then... That refers to 1,203 score days, the day and half the week, during which the tyrant is to reign and persecute the church, which flees from city to city and seeks concealment in the wilderness among the mountains. Another early Christian, Methodius of Jerusalem, he refers to the woman being um, sometimes Jerusalem, sometimes the bride, sometimes Mount Zion, and sometimes the temple and tabernacle of God, all these like corporate entity ideas. And that's the unanimous consent of like say New Testament scholars historically and in modern times. Uh, to give one example, um, Jürgen Roloff in the Fortress Press commentary from 1993. Women, in Revelation, women or women occurs 19 times. It might be said, therefore, that the woman symbol is almost as important as a lamb. This woman, as New Jerusalem, are the antithesis of the harlot, who is also a symbol, not a yeah. specific individual. Such a symbol of the faithful community. Uh, that's actually the Anchor Bible commentary, but the Fortress commentary is the heavenly woman, rather, is an image of the end-time salvation community, a symbol of the church. Uh, so... The woman here is not Mary. That's a later idea, especially when it comes to the belief in her assumption into heaven. And she's that the Ark of the Covenant in Catholic theology and Eastern Orthodox theology, but it's the church. And what's rather interesting is like the church is actually flees into the wilderness is inaccessible for a certain period of time, which should remind you of a certain group's beliefs about the church of the first century. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, personally, I think I don't think there's uh, some of the texts I heard these saints appeal to to support a great apostasy. I don't really think hold up. But this text alongside the text in Thessalonians about the Antichrist in the temple, see Richard Anderson's commentary on that, are probably the better text showing there was an expectation that not just a part of the church, but like the church would, as a corporate entity would be inaccessible to God's people for a period, for of, a time. period of time. Yeah. Which, And of course, like uh, there's the battle with Satan and the uh, child figure is, of course, Christ, at least uh, primarily. Um, you know, and it, it's basically like a, a symbolic battle between like the church, Christ, and the forces of yeah. evil in the opening six verses of this passage. Now, it also describes the the demon, uh, or excuse me, the dragon. Uh, and, and here we have one of our probably most clear references to Rome, uh, talking about having seven heads. Of course, you have the famous seven hills of Rome. Uh, so this was sort of like, you know... <laughs> Yeah, here's this dragon with these seven heads. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Exactly. <laughs> Subversive language without being explicit about yes. it. Yes. Uh, like, like when we were discussing like Philippians and the uh, hymn to Christ, where 
I believe Paul was the author, but Pieta is me, that he's actually deconstructing the Imper cult to prop up Christ. Yeah. And John is using this language to, like, again, subvert the Emperor and the Empire, but to build up the true Empire and Emperor that is the Church yeah. in Christ. And you've got the seven heads, the seven diadems or crowns, uh, and uh, then we get through the, the actual... <coughs> uh, He's trying to eat the child. He's trying to destroy Christ. And uh, uh, he is the child who's going to be a shepherd to all the nations uh, and then caught up to God before his throne. And a woman fled into the desert where there's a place prepared for her that she might be cared for there. Uh, then we get a, a, a flashback, if you will. This is, of course, something that the Latter-day Saints uh, definitely... Uh, tie into the war in heaven. Literally, that's the phrase there. The war, there was a war in heaven. Uh, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels returned the fight. The dragon and his angels were cast down. Uh, that ancient snake who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the entire world. Uh, and, uh, but that doesn't mean he stops fighting. He's still trying, even though he's cast down, or perhaps especially because he's cast down, he's trying to uh, pursue and kill the woman and the child. Uh, and I'll turn it back over to Robert. Uh, also, like, um, there's also the reference to the role Michael will play at, uh, in this role. Uh, like, there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels. I think this is rather important because, especially in light of our theology of who Michael is, like, we actually believe he's the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7, and also he's the um, patriarch of the human race, Adam, as well. So um, it's kind of interesting, like, say, the very first man who would be deceived, Allah section 29, would be the one who actually would play an instrumental role in the casting out of Satan as well. And this kind of, I think, kind of comes out, albeit with uh, the presentation of the temple endowment. Um, and for those who are in the know, I'll leave it at that. You know, like Rep, like John in the Revelator, you know, nudge, nudge. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, again, um, there's a lot of really cool stuff that we could discuss here. Uh, but definitely check out the B.H. Roberts Foundation on uh, Adam God, where you get a lot of traditions about Michael. Uh, we uncovered some texts that actually do teach that the Ancient of Days was an angel or the Archangel Michael. So uh, definitely check that one out. Oh, cool. The, uh, then we get in Chapter 13, and I'm, I'm, if I seem to be rushing along, I'm just keeping one eye over here on the time. We've got about uh, eight minutes left. Uh, chapter 13, the first and second beast... Uh, and this ends with the famous number 666 or 616, uh, depending on the manuscript. Uh, <clears throat> so we have the two beasts that are basically the, the, together with the dragon, form the unholy trinity, if you will. Uh, and these are the ones who uh, subvert the world. The, 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 the world goes after and worships the beasts. Uh, and they marvel at them and so on, uh, much to their destruction. Robert, let me. Uh, that's, oh, there's a lot we could say. Uh, <laughs> I just want to be as brief as possible here. Um, okay, well, the first four verses, like, uh, I saw a beast rising from the sea. Uh, there's, like, various Jewish traditions about this. Like, in four Ezra 11, uh, the eagle, which symbolizes the Roman Empire, arises from the sea with 12 feathered wings and three heads, while the Messiah, who destroys the emperor, comes forward as the lion from the woods for Ezra 1137. Um, and there's also Leviticus Rabbi Tarheen. I looked in my vision during the night, and behold, the four winds broke forth against the great sea, and four great beasts rose up from the dead. If you have merits from the sea, but if not from the woods, 
when a water animal rises up from the sea, it is powerless, but when an animal comes up out of the woods, it is not powerless. Uh, and then it kind of goes on. But like John, again, he's borrowing from like, say, Jewish traditions about like Rome and its presentation. And again, he's trying to subvert it uh, and promising its final destruction. Uh, and one could say like maybe Rome is a symbol of like, say, the forces of evil in toto as well. So again, there's a lot of ba- insider baseball language yeah. uh, for first century readers, you know, um, and we kind of have this as well. Like, um, you know, say at the temple and so forth, there's a lot of baseball language as well. Uh, insider baseball, I should say, that once you have a background understanding, it makes sense as well. And that may be a good analogy to what's going on to Revelation, um, especially like in its um, mythological um, presentation as well. And, and to your earlier point about the paradoxical conquering and so on, we have the phrase, verse 7, and he was permitted, this, this first beast, to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Uh, again, no triumphalism here. There, the, the, there isn't a triumph at this time. Uh, these, are, uh, these will be the saints that uh, uh, will be before the throne of God, who will be the martyrs and so on. And the reaction of the world is, you know, who can stand before this beast? Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> who can stand before the army of Shiz? Uh, Anyway, so we, we have that and says these circumstances require the endurance and faith of the saints. So you've got John basically saying, look, guys, things are going to get tough. Uh, their forces are rising, and I think this is probably as clear an indication of some of the references to contemporary history as, a part, as opposed to future history, saying we're, we're going we're gonna to get our butts kicked. This, you know, things, things are going to be bad. The world's, world's going to go after the, this first beast, and uh, you may be uh, persecuted and killed, which is exactly what started happening in this time frame. Uh, Robert, the second beast. Thoughts? Comments? Uh, which verses are we in now? Uh, we're at verse 11. Okay, verse 11. Um Sure. Then I saw another beast coming up from the earth. This creature will be described as a lamb, but introducing it as a beast, a terion suggests that he's dangerous like the beast from D.C. or the rabbit from Crestford uh, uh, Holy Grail. Uh, the way John sees each beast coming up suggests power to dominate, just as the beast symbolized empires that come from the sea and land in Daniel 7, 3 and 7, 17. Uh, John's readers would have correlated the beast from the sea with the Roman emperors and the beast from the land with those who promoted the imperial cult. Um, and there should be no like interpreters differ over more precise identification of the group, and that's from Coster's Anchor Bible Commentary on uh, Revelation. So again, there's a lot of uh, Old Testament and apocalyptic texts that are being appealed to Daniel and one Enoch, especially throughout all 22 chapters of uh, Revelation. And, and actually, this this ties into the fact that the best way to understand the scriptures is to understand the scriptures. The more scriptures you read, the more you'll see the cross references. The, exactly. Uh, <coughs> Book of Mormon and DNC helped tremendously in studying the Bible, and the Bible helps tremendously in studying the Book of Mormon and DNC. Uh, so we've got them. We've got the infamous mark on their right hand or forehead without the mark of the beast, which, you know, this, <laughs> this spawns. Rooted behind dozens and dozens of modern conspiracy theories. Uh, don't get that chip implanted. Uh, and the famous. Uh, then calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of the man and his number is 666. Uh, this is uh, <coughs> this is cited often as an evidence of this being in Nero's time rather than later time because uh, you, can, you can come up with a Hebrew consonant 
numeric translation calculation for Nero Caesar. Uh, but I will pass this on to Robert for additional informed commentary on it. Uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, there's a textual variation. Some manuscripts read 616, but 666, I think, is the uh, batter reading. Um, and I do believe, like, it is, like, um, gematria, if you will, mm-hmm. for, like, a figure. Now, who that is, yeah. f- like, how fluid, like, some of these names and titles were. But it is a plausible deconstruction subversion of either Nero or Domitian. Okay. Uh, so, although, funnily enough, like, I think, like, that interpretation only really came about in the 19th century. Richard Bach oh, really? in the climax of prophecy kind of shows, like, it came about late, uh, late <laughs> like, in the 19th century. But yeah, I think like it's one of those things where modern discoveries kind of are better. Uh, it's probably, like, a contemporary leader, and they're using Hebrew numerics, um, Aleph 1, Beta 2, to, uh, Beta, I should say, to, to um, sum it up. Again, it's Gematria that's going on here. Okay, we've got about two minutes to cover chapter 14. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> so let's, let's, the 140, we back to the 144,000. Uh, the uh, <coughs> Babylon, the Great Falling, which again, Babylon is Rome, Rome is Babylon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, to the gathering of, with the sickle and the winepress of the wrath of God, which is a image that again, we as Latter-day Saints uh, have reference to in the DNC. And Robert, I'll let you get the finest words here until they start interrupting us. Oh, sure. Uh, verse 4 refers to the 144,000 versions. And like somebody say, well, does this mean clericalism, like clerical celibacy? Or how does this fit, like Latter-day Saint believed, like marriage, eternal marriage is like the highest ordinance, you know, because you can't be a virgin if that's the case. But most interpreters, uh, even those who would come from, like, say, a Catholic or monastic uh, background would say, mm, this is a symbol. To quote uh, briefly Craig Coster in his commentary in Revelation, most interpreters, however, take virginity here in verse 4 as a metaphor for t- fidelity to God and Christ, since John uses antithetical terms such as immorality, adultery, and prostitution as metaphors for religious unfaithfulness. So it's a metaphor for like being faithful to the gospel. It's not a commentary for or against uh, sexuality and marriage sex, yeah. and priestly celibacy yeah. and so forth. Uh, again, so it, it's not problematic for like Latter-day Saint theology about um, marriage and... Um, other issues like that. Sorry, keep my eye on this. We're, this is going to cut in. Uh, folks, have fun with these chapters. <laughs> we certainly did. Uh, the uh, And like I said, I'm, I'm expecting this. I'm looking up here and expecting this to kick in any second here. And this is the point at which I awkwardly try to fill time, either that or I end up talking over the... Uh, well, uh, Robert, l- l- let me just say, if someone wants to, perhaps, although I don't agree with some of it, like perhaps the best commentary I've read is uh, the New International Greek Testament commentary on Revelation. Uh, I also suggest to your mutual friend Mike Park, and he loved it as well. Uh, it's a pretty hefty book, but I'm the guy's a Calvinist, but at the same time, it's one of the better commentaries out there. We'll see you after the top of the hour.